today, James 5. If you're using a pew Bible, you can uh, find your place on page 1013. 1013. Focusing on just verses 19 and 20 this morning. Uh, As I mentioned last week, as the gospel advances among all peoples, the Holy Spirit transforms people. Uh, Transforms transforms them into a new people. Uh, One fruit of this gospel transformation is a people with a new speech. So the the gospel creates a new people with a new speech. Uh, The world is full of sinful speech. Uh, Lies and cunning remarks, anger, quarreling, fighting, grumbling about others. And all of us were once part of, of this rebellious world. And when, when sin rules the soul, uh, people don't use their mouths to glorify God and, and to serve others. That all changes when, we, when, when the gospel takes root in our lives. Uh, when we believe the gospel, God unites us to Jesus. And Jesus not only breaks the power of sin, uh, but also gives us a new heart. The new heart frees us to to speak and use our words as we ought to speak and use our words. However, even those of us here in in the church still struggle with remaining sin. Uh, The fullness of salvation has yet to arrive. The reign of sin has been snapped, but the remnants of sin still wreaks havoc if we allow sin, even the slightest of ground, in our lives. And occasionally that will manifest itself in the sinful use of our words. The church James is writing to had a similar struggle. Uh, God has rebuked them already, and now at the end of the letter, James is is moving uh, towards a more constructive use uh, of, of our speech. A few constructive examples of righteous speech. And we looked at three of those examples last week. Uh, we, uh, we express adoration to God in prayer. Uh, we express um, pr- uh, praise to God. Uh, I'm sorry, we, we express adoration to God in praise. We express dependence on God in prayer. And we express humility toward each other when we confess our sins to each other. In verse 19, James adds yet another example of righteous speech. Righteous speech also includes using our words to restore each other to gospel truth if anyone happens to go astray from gospel truth. We use our words to restore each other to gospel truth if anyone happens to wander from gospel truth. As we'll see, it's in this way that the whole church helps each and every saint to persevere to the end for salvation. Perseverance is a community project. We need each other to make it to the end. Read with me verses 19 to 20, and then let's pray for help. So verse 19, hear the word of the Lord. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth... And someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death 
and will cover a multitude of sins. Father, I pray that you would use your word this morning to change us and transform us and make us more and more like Christ, especially in our pursuit of each other regularly, but also and especially when we may go astray from the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to take four steps this morning to understand and apply these verses. Step one, we need to review the church and its relation to gospel truth. The church and its relation to gospel truth. James mentions uh, the truth, you see there in verse 19. The truth. Uh, unlike the, the religious pluralism saturating the culture around us, James believes in the truth. There is truth uh, from, from which you can wander, and the result is damning to the soul. The word truth appears two other places in James, and they help us see the larger picture of what he's talking about. So look with me first at chapter 1, verse 18. It says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is conversion. God converts people by the word of truth. And the same expression is used in Ephesians 1.13 and 1 Peter 1. They identify the word of truth, as the gospel of our salvation. So this is not just any truth, general truth, like one plus one equals two, though it's going to go really bad for you if you deny that. This is special uh, gospel truth, the truth that God reveals in Scripture, the truth that reveals God in all of His holiness. The truth that exposes us as guilty sinners before our Maker and then tells us of Jesus Christ, His, his perfect life, His, his cross, his, his resurrection, his, his present reign and His future return, and all that, that His Word demands upon our lives. This gospel truth is what God uses to create the church, to, to bring the church into Existence to convert people out of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of, of light. Once that gospel truth creates the church, it then produces ongoing results in, the, in, the, in, that, in that people. Again, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 stated the results that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So when it's, when it's truly embraced, the gospel doesn't leave people the same. Gospel truth compels the church to live as God's new creation people, to, to reflect God's image in all that we do. And James, of course, has laid this out for us in some very concrete ways. As the letter uh, progresses, James shows how that plays out in our, in our speech ethics, our, our controlled speech, uh, in our pursuit of what is holy, and in our care for the helpless around us. Look also at chapter 3. 
verse uh, 14. This is the other place James refers to the truth. It says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So this gospel truth, I mean, when you, when you look at Jesus revealed in this gospel truth, right? Jesus, who had, who had every right to condemn us as guilty sinners, he, he humbles himself even to the point of death in our place to bear our judgment. When you look at that gospel truth, that compels humility. It compels mercy towards others and peace in the church, not jealousy and selfish ambition. When you profess to know gospel truth, but live in a way that contradicts gospel truth, and then boast about it instead of repenting, you end up telling the world lies about gospel truth. In other words, wandering from the truth has just as much to do with our outward actions as it does our inward convictions. Just as much to do with our behavior as much as it does our beliefs. Gospel truth compels the true Christian to live in ways and to think in ways that show the worth and value of Jesus. When we don't live in that way, you know, when we slander and fight and gossip and such, and when we, just, when we walk just like the world does in sin, we prove by our actions that something besides the gospel is compelling us. Which leads me to say one more thing about the church and its relation to gospel truth. Gospel truth must also correct the church. Gospel truth must also correct the church. The church is, Paul says, a pillar and buttress of the truth. But we will be that pillar and buttress of the truth only insofar as the truth rules us. Only insofar as that truth governs us, our life, our thinking. Only so insofar as that truth corrects our wrong thinking and corrects our wrong living. You may recall the story that Paul gives in Galatians chapter 2. Peter is a, a Jewish convert to Christ. Peter was, was won over by gospel truth that salvation comes not by something that we do, but by everything that Christ does for us. And because of this truth, Peter was eating freely with Gentiles who had also been converted by the same gospel truth. Jesus had tore down that dividing wall of hostility and G Peter is there communing and fellowshipping with Gentiles. They were all one body in Christ and, and then all of a sudden some Jews show up and Peter, fearing the circumcision party, it says, drew back and he separated himself from the Gentiles. He didn't want his old Jewish buddies to see him associating with the Gentiles. I mean, after all, the Gentiles didn't have the badge of circumcision like they did. And the rest of the Jews followed Peter, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. They might have said salvation is by faith in Christ alone, but their actions were showing that they put a whole lot of stock in their works. Does Paul just let this continue? 
Does Paul just sit back and let the hypocrisy run rampant in the church and let the Jews and the Gentiles sit at their separate tables and boast in their distinctions? Does Paul fear how awkward it might have been to confront Peter? No, it says that he opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. That's love, folks. When you see that your brother is starting to, to, to uh, walk in a way that would ultimately lead to his condemnation because he's forsaking the true gospel for, the, for, uh, for something that is false, love is going to run after him. Love is going to pursue him. Love is going to speak for his good. But look at the way Paul describes what led him to act. This is Galatians chapter 2. If you want to go there with me and look at it yourself, it's very similar to what, what we're getting here with James. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. So this is what led Paul to act. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. It's very similar to James. What James means by wandering from the truth is what Paul means by not walking in step with the gospel. So there's something about the way someone is acting that's out of sync with the rhythms of the gospel truth. And we need correction for it. All right, you can go back to James 5. So that's a, an illustration here of how some of these truths that we're learning in James played out with, between Paul and Peter. Step two, we need to look at the church restoring each other to gospel truth. Notice first James's use of anyone. Verse 19, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. Anyone is vulnerable to wandering from gospel truth. Okay, nobody in here is immune to wandering away from the truth. And if you think that you are immune, you're in a very dangerous place. We have to heed Paul's counsel. Take heed lest you fall. You know, your elders, your staff, your ministry leaders were all vulnerable to wandering away from the truth of the gospel. And this is why... Uh, Paul's counsel in Galatians 6.1 is so important for us to remember. You know, when we're in a situation where we have to run after and restore someone else, he, he says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness while keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we're all vulnerable to stray, and that should not only keep us humbly crying out to the Lord, that should also shape how much you see your need for each other to keep you on the right path. Lifeway Christian Resources and Ligonier Ministries recently put out some statistics 
on the state of theology in the American church. Uh, and it's a grievous report, but not so surprising. And I'd encourage you to check it out, just thestateoftheology.com, thestateoftheology.com. Uh, but one of the things they found was that Christianity, apart from the local church, is not theologically robust Christianity. There's no accountability to gospel truth when you cut yourself off from the local church. We need each other to keep walking in step with the gospel. Why? Because we're all vulnerable to going astray from it when we're Lone Ranger Christian. Leads me to another observation here. Notice that anyone can act to bring the wanderer back. Anyone is vulnerable. Anyone can act to bring the wanderer back. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone or, or anyone, same word, brings him back. In other words, restoring the wayward person is not restricted to the elders or to the ministry leaders. Restoring a wayward person doesn't begin with people coming to the elders first and telling them what's going on with somebody. It begins with you going to the wayward person. Of course, we'll gladly walk alongside you and pray with you and offer counsel and assistance where that's needed, but restoring the wayward person is for all of the church's members, not just a select few. If you're not the wayward person, I hope that you're chasing after the wayward person. Anyone who loves Jesus and who loves the gospel truth entrusted to the church can and should act if they see a brother or sister wandering from gospel truth. Gospel truth corrects only insofar as we speak it to one another, as we go and speak. More on that in a moment. But do notice, lastly, that it is gospel truth to which the person, the wayward person, must return. Okay? He has wandered from the truth, either in his belief or in his behavior. And when someone brings him back, he brings the person back to the truth, this gospel truth, not merely back to the church, not merely back to a friendship or, or a ministry position, but back to gospel truth. It's the truth of the gospel that saves people and keeps people saved. Which brings us to step three. The church and its members are saved and preserved by gospel truth. The church and its members are saved and preserved by gospel truth. In verse 20, we get a, a twofold result of bringing the sinner back from his wandering and into step with gospel truth. And the, refer, the first result is this he will save his soul from death. By death, he does not mean physical death, but spiritual death and ultimately eternal death. Separation from God's welcoming presence and the experience of His divine wrath forever. Living in unrepentant sin and waywardness from the gospel of life in Christ will always bring death. In chapter 1, verse 15, James shows how waywardness, how wayward desires, they lead to sin, and then sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, by which he means separation from God, cut off from experiencing eternal life with God, both now and in the age to come. 
So whenever someone restores the sinner back to gospel truth, the result is his eternal salvation. If that person continues down the wrong path without repentance, he will suffer condemnation. But if he responds to our pleas to repent and he returns to Christ in the gospel, he will be saved, that is, finally saved on the last day. The New Testament talks about salvation in terms of we were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. James has this eschatological, this end-time salvation in view here, which brings up a huge point that we must get as a church. Anyone who does not persevere to the end will not be saved. Anyone who does not persevere to the end will not be saved. Jesus says that much. In twice, Matthew 10:22 and Matthew 24:13, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or take Colossians 1. Colossians 1 verses 22 and 23. Christ reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If Indeed, you continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Big statement there. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So perseverance is necessary for final salvation. Final salvation is conditional on the, persevering, on the perseverance of the saint. We must walk in step with the gospel until we reach the end or Christ calls us home. Never does the Bible give assurance to a person who is proving by his unrepentant lifestyle that Jesus is not the object of his faith. Discipleship begins with a profession of faith, but that profession means nothing without perseverance. The perseverance of the saint is the inevitable result of genuine faith. The person who goes astray from the truth, never to return, is proving that his faith is not, in fact, in Jesus. He's like the people in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. It says that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Now, to be clear, everyone who truly belongs to Christ will persevere to the end and finally be saved by God's grace. Romans 8, verse 30, is a glorious text that says, Those whom he called, he also justified... And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if you've been justified by faith in Christ alone, you're going to make it to glory. You will be glorified. It's as good as done, according to Romans 8.30. Those who are truly justified will make it to the end. Every grace that we need between our union with Christ and faith all the way to the end will be 
there for, uh, for those of us in Christ. This is why Paul can reassure the church in places like Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion for the day of Christ Jesus. But here's how a text like James 5 fits into that larger picture of perseverance. God uses means to keep the sinner, to keep his saints persevering. And one of the means he uses is the local church. You guys. You are one of his appointed means in helping each other make it to the end. So it's, it's let's summarize what we just reviewed from a whole lot of text. It's necessary that we persevere to the end. God promises to keep us until the end. And one of the ways he keeps us till the end is by using each other to keep us walking in the truth. So notice, notice uh, the text here. He will save his soul from death. And God is not the subject there. He will save his soul from death. It's the restorer. Now we know ultimately from elsewhere in Scripture that it's God who, who saves the sinner. But James is quite comfortable saying the restorer will save the sinner's soul from death because James believes God uses means in saving, in his saving work. And that means as you and me. God is ultimately the Savior, but he uses us to keep his people walking with him. And that's not because we're so great, but because the spirit of grace is at work in and through the church. We were once dead and he made us alive. And now by the Spirit's enabling power, we, we run this race together. When one of us goes off the track, we, we bring each other back onto the track until we make it to the finish line. And we do this because ultimately that's what our God is like. And when the Lord himself lives among his people, he moves his people to, to live and, and act like he, he does towards his people. I mean, isn't, he, isn't the Lord like a shepherd who chases down the lost sheep? Matthew chapter 18, right? Famous text. Everybody knows it because it's the church discipline passage. But they hardly ever pay attention to the What's just right before it? Matthew 18, verses 10 to 14. Jesus says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray. This is the same word that James uses for, for wandering, a sinner wandering away from the truth. If one of them goes astray, he wanders. Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And then, what does he go on to show with the church discipline passage? Oh, it's how the Father's love plays out in the life of the people in the local church. People are going to each other with the Father's love when their brother has sinned and gone astray, not for the purpose of cutting off, but always for the purpose of keeping people in. 
it may end up proving that someone loves their sin more than Jesus. And in that case, the, the church has to act. But the point and the goal is restoration, rescuing the straying sheep. So if that's the way the fathers loved is towards his little ones, then far be it from us to ignore it when someone goes astray. Every single disciple matters to the Lord. We go after them like the Father would come after us. Another result of restoring someone to gospel truth is this. He will cover a multitude of sins. He will cover a multitude of sins. That's not an easy one to understand. And I really wrestled with what James means by this covering a multitude of sins. I can first tell you what it certainly does not mean. It does not mean that our own restorative actions ultimately cover or atone for the person's sins. The scripture is clear. Only Jesus' restorative actions cover and atone for sins when we place our faith in Him. Only Jesus is qualified to take away our guilt and shame, all of our wrongdoings uh, wiped clean. He does that for anybody here who trusts in Him. It also can't mean that we cover over our sin in the sense that we treat it as no big deal. That we keep hiding it. That seems to undermine the whole point of James's exhortation. So what then does it mean? Here's two of my best attempts. One is that covering a multitude of sins describes the effects that the restoration of the sinner will have on him and the church as a whole. So this exact phrase reappears in 1 Peter 4.8, where he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10.12 has similar wording. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So there's a, a deeply interpersonal aspect to this, a communal aspect of this. And James could be saying that when we pursue each other with earnest love and we restore the wayward person back to the gospel, we keep a multitude of sins from wreaking any further havoc in his own life or in the life of the church. But there may be a clearer option here. The other way to read it is as a further explanation of saving the person's soul from death. So what does it mean to have your soul saved from death? Well, it also means to have a multitude of your sins forgiven, covered, not ultimately by the restorer, but by the blood of Jesus. So the idea here is that the restorer is bringing back the sinner to the gospel truth and it's in the gospel truth that any sinner finds forgiveness and covering for a multitude of his sins. First uh, John chapter 1, verse 7 might serve as a good parallel idea. If we walk in the light as God is in the light, so think of walking in the truth, according to James. If we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sins. So if we, if we choose not to walk in the light, then we prove that the blood of Jesus hasn't truly cleansed us. Only those who are truly cleansed 
of their sins and who are, are freed and liberated by the, uh, the death of Jesus walk in the light. And that will also be true when a Christian goes astray from the truth. If he truly knows the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ, then the gospel will turn him back. Even if it takes time and months of pleading with him to come back. Even if it takes time, he will turn back. And as he remains steadfast, the Lord will cover his sins through Jesus' blood. Either way, the point is clear that God both saves and preserves his church and its members when we restore each other to the gospel truth. It's the gospel that's saving here. It's in the truth of the gospel that we encounter Jesus who alone saves and who alone forgives sins. I mean, isn't it glorious that Jesus covers a multitude of sins? I mean, however far away we may perceive someone to be, Jesus' blood is able to cover it. That, that should give us all the more reason to go after the wanderer, no matter what he's swimming in. And never carry this attitude of, oh, he's just done way too much. He's, he's finished. Never does there come a point in time where we're talking with that sinner as we're restoring him back to the gospel truth that, we, that he's confessing these sins and divulging all that he's been in. And we scratch our heads going, yeah, I don't know if Jesus is going to cover that one. Why? Because Jesus covers a multitude of sins. His blood is able to cover and cleanse from all kinds of sins. Last step, number four. How might we put into practice what we've learned about the church's role in the saints' perseverance? So we've worked through the text. Now I just want to leave us with a few tangible takeaways. First off, keep each other accountable to gospel truth. Keep each other accountable to gospel truth. The culture around us isn't making it any easier to stand firm in gospel truth. And, and that's to be expected. They don't know Jesus. But sadly, other churches, if we can still call them that, and entire denominations have wandered from the truth of the gospel to accommodate the culture. That has included compromising basic gospel doctrines such as the exclusivity of Christ as the only way for salvation, or that has included making the Bible's ethical teaching on marriage and human sexuality more palatable to the culture, culture's wants. Sometimes it's, it's that a church just doesn't want to hold the members accountable to the truth. One of the hardest things in this culture about trying to be faithful and practicing church discipline and accountability is that half the time people go down the street and just join the next church that will wink at their sins. But James has shown us that wandering from gospel truth is destructive to the soul. And so we must never give this up. Moreover, 1 Corinthians 15.3 says the gospel is of first importance. Why is it so important, Paul says? Because it's the message by which we are being saved right now. 
gospel message is not just for non-believers. It is for the church. It is for believers. If we lose the gospel, then we lose Jesus and everything with him. Our beliefs must align with the gospel and our behavior must accord with the gospel. Let's not treat what is central to the faith as if it's peripheral. Faithfulness to the gospel and belief and behavior is necessary for salvation. Second, you and I have an incredible responsibility for each other. This is why James encourages the church to restore the wayward person. This is why Hebrews 10 says that we must not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is why we have a Membership Matters class here. Why we read our church covenant regularly. Why we strive to practice meaningful membership and church discipline. We need to understand who we truly are in relation to each other. Our unity in Christ is deeply interpersonal. We need to be familiar enough with each other's lives that we'd actually know when someone goes astray from the truth. God's word to us here reminds us to redouble our efforts in caring for one another, to keep looking out for one another's well-being. It's also a good reminder of, of the massively significant role that we play in helping each other make it to the end. Perseverance is a community project. I need Brian Walker to keep checking on me as a pastor like he does so faithfully. He's been there. I need the elders to rebuke me when I get proud or when my thinking is not correct and my logic is not right in, in an elder meeting. I need Michael to ask me hard questions while we're jogging about what causes my frustrations as a parent. What are each of these brothers doing? They are caring for my soul on an ongoing basis, making sure that I don't take my eyes off gospel truth. Oh, that all of our relationships would manifest such concern and care for each other. Third, James's words teach us to be patient with our judgments on a wayward individual. Be patient with our judgments on a wayward individual. You know, if someone goes away astray from gospel truth, sometimes we're too quick to judge them, too quick to write them off as false. But James is still willing to include the person among my brothers in verse 19. My brothers, if anyone from among you, that is, from among you, my brothers, wonders. So the demeanor would be like running after an immediate family member. A brother, a sister, a mom, a dad. The initial waywardness shouldn't make us condescending, but compassionate. If there's no sign of repentance over time, the Bible also gives us clear direction on how to act in that situation. But the hope is that 
over time, our pleadings will in fact be used by God to keep people faithful. And that should make us patient. We don't go after them like an enemy. We warn them as a brother, as a sister. Finally, we must lovingly pursue and not ignore those who go astray. We must lovingly pursue and not ignore those who go astray. It's easy to love those who are progressing in the faith. It's easy to love people who are zealous for Jesus and who sacrifice all the time and who look for ways to serve you and pray for you. But doesn't it require a lot more from us to love the person who goes astray? Sometimes it's that we just don't want to get involved in potential controversy. We don't like confrontation. Maybe it's that we fear being rejected. You know, what if he never turns? What if she doesn't listen to me? Sometimes it's that we just don't want to make the extra effort. Whatever makes it more difficult for us to love, let this passage encourage you. It's, it's meant to be an encouragement to the restorer. That's who it's written to. Let him, the restorer, know. See, you may be used of God to save a soul from death. Isn't your brother or sister's salvation worth it? Isn't their eternal destiny of greater concern than our comfort? Of course it is. We, we know that it is. And ultimately, we know that Jesus is worthy of their praise. We, we want the praise of Christ coming from their lips. That's ultimately why we do it. They, they reach the end saved, and Jesus gets all the glory for it. We can't love only when it's comfortable and convenient. We must love even when it's hard and may require awkward encounters. May we call for a face-to-face -face rebuke like Paul and Peter. Besides, don't we have to remember how we didn't deserve to be found when we went astray? But the Father overcame every obstacle to have us. It's not like we're running after these people, never knowing what it's like to go astray. We started astray. That's where God found us. Isaiah 53 says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. All of us know what it's like to go astray, and all of us who belong to Jesus, know what it's like to be found. The Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. If a member strays, remember how the Lord has come after you in Christ. And then do likewise for them. Why don't we bow for a word of prayer?